You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now, then, uh, as is our custom, I want you to join me in Matthew chapter 6. As a church, we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels. That is, that word gospel simply means good news. And so this is the first of the, the four good newses of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that we find in the New Testament, the, the person and work of Jesus. And we find ourselves in the most famous text in possibly the whole Bible, that is what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, where Matthew introduces us to the the beginning of Jesus' public teaching and communicating ministry. So from Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And we come today to what is clearly the most famous part of the most famous sermon or oratory ever recorded. That is the Lord's Prayer, as Christians would call it. And so we're going to spend most of our time uh, in, in just the first couple of phrases of what we know as the, mo- we know as the model prayer, or the, the Lord's Prayer, uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap up our time in the Lord's Prayer, uh, taking the next step in the, in the section of the Lord's Prayer on Good Friday, and then wrapping up our time on Easter Sunday. And so we're going to read together uh, a big a chunk of this. Uh, and, and we're going to read from verse 5, where Jesus talks about some ways not to pray that we've been looking at the last few weeks, all the way through verse 15, where he tells us how we ought to pray. And so I want to invite you into, uh, into a journey through this public teaching of Jesus. This is, uh, I shared this with you w- with as many disclaimers as possible. This is the, the most highly exegeted or expounded upon text in the entire world. More libraries have been filled <laughs> Uh, with, with what people make of this, this public teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount. And even more libraries have been made up of uh, reflections upon this prayer that Jesus gives to us as a model, as a way that we ought to pray. And so, so my goal isn't to in any way sort of add to that. I have nothing original to contribute. Instead, what, what my hope is that, that while we could in one way or another kind of run through the, the, ser- the Sermon on the Mount very quickly and even the Lord's Prayer very quickly, otherwise we could also stop and spend a week on every single word that is packed into this dense and meaningful prayer. And my goal is, my prayer has been that, that we would simply see this in light of what God's called us to be as a church. And so I just want you to know that my, my goal in the next couple of weeks walking through the, this, this part of the Sermon on the Mount known as the Lord's Prayer is purely pastoral. There are many libraries that could be filled about this, I, and I commend them to you. There are many books and resources I would commend to you that would like further your understanding and the depth of experience of the Lord's Prayer here. Mine has been more of, God, God show us what we're supposed to hear. Uh, God, excuse me, show us what we're supposed to see. Let us hear what we're supposed to hear. And so uh, I want us to read verse 5 through uh, all the way through verse 15, and then we'll begin spending most of our time on the first couple of phrases. In fact, the first half, you might even say, of the Lord's Prayer, beginning in verse 5. And when, not if, you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need 
before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I want to begin with a question as we think about this prayer. What is the biggest thing you've ever asked for? I know that's grammatically incorrect. I couldn't find a way to end that without a preposition. Forgive me. What is the biggest thing you've ever asked for? What's the grandest petition? Right? Maybe for some of you, what's the, what's the most ambitious application you've ever submitted? What's the greatest thing you've ever asked for? Mine are simultaneous. Uh, some years ago, I met with a friend, some friends of our family. Uh, their names were Larry and Sharon. Bought them, took them out to dinner, bought them dinner. We tried to buy them dinner, didn't even get away with that. Uh, in order to ask them if they would allow me to marry their daughter. Which was superseded only by a few days later when I asked their daughter if she would marry me. Hey, joke's on them. They said yes. What's the biggest thing you've ever asked for? What's the boldest thing you've ever dreamt of? Something so embarrassing you might not even want to tell people, right? Maybe it was like when you were a child and you're like, I'm going to be the president of the world, right? Or maybe, maybe if you're like me, as you grew up, I'm, I'm going to pray for some great ambitious goal or status for myself. What is the biggest thing you've ever asked for? Because the question, I think, is based upon a, per, a certain thing that I want to draw out in this first half of this model prayer that Jesus gives for us. Namely, if you were to think seriously about it and, and really understand why you did or did not even have the, you know, the possibility of getting the thing you asked for, is what was the grounds for such a request? Right? What was the basis to ask for such a thing? And what we are introduced here is not only what I believe is the grandest and largest request that could ever be made in existence, but also, more importantly for us, as we think about Jesus giving us a model for what not to do twice in a row, a model for a hypocritical way to come to God in prayer, we're given the basis and the grounds by which we can come to God rightly. And what is the grounds for that prayer? What is the basis by which we can approach God? It's very simple, and I'll give you about five of these things that we see today in this first half of this prayer. In prayer, we meet our true Father. Now, I'll spend most of our time this morning really reflecting upon and expounding upon that very phrase, those first two words translated here, our Father. Our Father. And for Jesus, this is the grounds for prayer. 
This is the basis for asking God for big, amazing, unbelievable things. Because after all, what are the things that you could ask, presumably, in our culture, of maybe like a perfect stranger? Right? Maybe if you were in a public space, what are the things you can get away with requesting? Right? If you walked up to someone you didn't know, what could you ask for? And it would be, in a sense, kind of acceptable. Right? Directions, maybe. Right? Like, hey, where is the? Hey, can you show me to the? Right? And most people, even a perfect stranger would you're right. I've been there. I know what that's like. You know, here, here, do this, right? Maybe. I mean, no one, I don't think anyone does this anymore, but like you could ask for the time. Uh, I would love to know if someone has done that anytime recently, like, like not a stranger anyway. Uh, usually it's just someone like you know in the same room that you're yelling at, right? But maybe that's, a, that's probably an acceptable thing. But once you kind of go beyond that, it's very unlikely someone will kind of like give into it. And even in our city, if, if you think in, in this way, like even in our city, if you were to, to stand out on a street and ask for money, ask for help, if you were in need and you, and you were like, hey, anything helps, even then you'll see you may not have the grounds for such a request. You come to find out you don't really have a strong foundation or basis by which that request is going to be answered positively. And what you see, the limits of of those requests are actually the grounds on which we stand and the grounds for those kinds of petitions. And yet Jesus wants us to see something here that is radically countercultural. It will change everything about your life and changes every view of the world that has been known historically. Seeing God as a father changes everything. It is your grounds for being heard. After all, think of the most, right, the most famous, influential, important person you can imagine. And imagine right now you trying to get a hold of them and asking them for something. Right? Even something simple. Like lunch. Or dinner. But you know who has no problem asking that super important, influential person for things like food? Their children. And they can barge right past the barriers that hold you and I back from knowing that person closely. They can barge right up to that person, famous and influential as they may be, and demand anything, frankly. And when you see God as a father, when Jesus introduces us to how we can now relate to God as a father, it changes everything. And I would even say here specifically, it changes, as Jesus tells us, how we relate to God. I say relate, that, I think that is a kind of a metaphorical umbrella term for what it means to pray. After all, prayer is, is a diverse and, and, and complicated and yet often simple concept in the Bible, and it's simply us communicating with God, right? Either in things that we're saying to God or in prayer, things that we are hearing from God. It's just simply relating to God. It's simply communicating to God. That that is all prayer is. And so we see all types of prayer across the entirety of Scripture from the beginning to the end. Ways that God uh, God is petitioned by His people. Ways that people are crying out to God. We see this especially. I hope you'll this 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 should ring very true for you as we typically in the sunny in the summers uh, sunny sunny summers that Marty I can already see it man 
Woo! Anyway, in the summers, we tend to walk through the Psalms, which are the prayer books of the Bible. They're the language of simply relating to God. And so this shouldn't seem unfamiliar to you. And so what we see here is the praise that comes in, in light of that, the submission to God as king and ruler, a desire for his reign, and then a desire for his plan. All based on the grounds that God introduces himself to us as a father. So I want to reflect on that. The last two weeks, the, the, the examples that he has given us for how we give or how we pray are the examples of what not to do, the examples of a hypocrite, uh, the examples of a person whose life in public is different from their life in private. Literally, the word hypocrite comes from the language of the theater. That is, a person was a, who was a hypocrite at that particular time, that was a similar, the, the, probably the more modern translation would be the word actor or actress. It's just a person who is playing a part. That's what a hypocrite is. That is, they're, they're not being their real self. And yet, as a result, they see God and even the people around them as objects, commodities, and their interactions are simply transactional. And in a transaction, you're thinking to yourself, I have something. You're thinking in terms of performance. But Jesus says that we are family. And while in a transaction, a hypocritical transaction at that, we say to ourselves, I have something. In a family, you look around and you say, I am something. You are something based on commitments and, and powers that are beyond your control. After all, you can, you can make a friend. You can make a person, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or a spouse, or a friend, right? You can't make anyone family. It takes something more powerful. You have to appeal to a much higher authority. There are deeper and more complicated processes involved. And so you can rent a house and be a tenant to a landlord, but to live in the household of a father transforms your relationship and your identity. And Jesus, I think, says here, in contrast, you'll either be a tenant thinking you have something to offer or something that you owe, or you'll be a child. You can't be both. Now, obviously, there's some of you maybe charging rent to your grown children. There are complexities here that I don't want to step on anyone's toes. Bless you in that. But even then, there's, there's, there's pieces of, it, of that, right? It's, even then, it's not truly rent. And so Jesus says you'll either relate to God as a tenant, even worse, as a, as a slave, or you will relate to him as a father. John chapter 1 introduces us to the work of Jesus this way. He says that, but to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children adopted with all the rights, all the identity, all the status, all the inheritance, and even all the discipline of a child. And so the two ways he's told us not to pray, as those who are simply trying to get something by the way they pray or give, either by hollow babbling or, or empty or vain words, are meant to be a contrast for now as children how we relate to the Father in private prayer. Now, here's the weird part. He just told us there's a way to relate to God that are hypocritical. 
One is like just a heaping up of vain words that are empty and superficial. And the other is using words that on the surface are more impressive than the state of your heart. And wouldn't you know it that many Christians and even churches tend to implement the Lord's Prayer in such a way that are either highly religious, performative, hollow, or superficial. And so he says, don't do that. That's probably the warning I would say to you if you're, you're raised in Christian circles. You've, you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer, and, and the temptation will be to simply turn the Lord's Prayer into everything he said don't do, right? It'll be a hollow babbling, or it'll be some sort of kind of superstitious incantation, right? Like, well, I prayed the Lord's Prayer. He must, right? as, if, as if it somehow holds more power. Jesus isn't saying that. He's simply saying, this is how you want to pray privately. Now, in the first century, we see, we see texts of, of, of the church fathers that tell us that these were, it was, it was, it was suggested to Christians in the Didache that three times a day, like, like their Jewish predecessors, they would be praying the Lord's Prayer in private. But centuries later, it actually began to be incorporated into liturgy. And so we've done this before in our church, but like you may have attended a worship service where we recite the Lord's Prayer, but therein lies the mystery, Right? He's telling us how to pray privately, and he's saying, don't make this into some sort of religious or hollow or superficial ritual, and what is the first thing that we do? We go, oh, thank you for this prayer, Jesus. That's so awesome. Let's go do everything that you told us not to do in the first two examples. So I don't want you to get all tied up in knots in that to where you don't know if you can or can't pray rightly. And if you find yourself frustrated or even wondering, can I even be freed from hypocritical prayer? Now you're asking the right question, and now you're seeing Jesus more rightly. Later we'll see a picture of this as a Pharisee comes in to pray and his prayer is loud and public. I think Jesus you know, uses him as an object lesson later for this. And, and he you know, proudly, like, I, I thank God that I'm not like them, right? And then he says, he gives an example of another person who comes in who is a publican or tax collector, the, the lowest of the low, the betrayers of the, of the culture, right? And he doesn't, even have, he doesn't even have the courage to face heaven. He just looks down, beats his breast and says, Woe, woe to me, right? Have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus asks a profound question to his disciples, which one went away righteous? So when we pray, our primary audience is God. Our private and public prayers are meant to look similar. Even if we, do, even if we pray in such a way that's prepared or reciting or leading, like on a Sunday morning, even then, it's meant to lead us somewhere and draw our attention to God. And even as such, that again, I don't want you to get tied in knots. We're like, I can't pray in public anymore. Like, no, no, this, we're simply meant to see here the, the kind of hypocrisy that creeps in when we let our public face kind of deceive us into thinking that like, our private and secret relationship with God is somehow masked or, or covered up by it. And so the purpose is the focus to draw attention to God and not ourselves. And public and private prayer instruct one another in that. Our public prayers should probably become more personal and transparent. They shouldn't be to put on a show. You can pray for me and other people as we lead one another in prayer on a Sunday morning, that we would fight the temptation to perform, that we would fight the temptation to, to worry about what you think about us as we pray publicly. But instead, we would simply behold the Father and invite you to join us as we go to Him. But on the other hand, our private prayer should probably be more expansive, more all-encompassing. Notice the language here is of plural, our Father. 
Give us. Forgive us. Lead us. And maybe our private prayer should be less like self-centered and even more all-encompassing. They inform one another. But how do we do such a thing? Jesus gives us a way so that our private and public prayer begin to look right. Based on, as we see here in verse 8, and we saw last week, that the Father already knows what we need. You're not informing God of anything in prayer. Isaiah 65 says it this way, There shall be an offspring of the, bless, or of, the, uh, of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants along with them. And before they call, I will answer them. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. So this isn't new. Before they even ask, we find here, according to the prophet Isaiah, there is a father who already knows. Now, it's interesting because in this particular passage, over thir- like about 13 times, we see the phrase, our father, or, or a relationship we see of the father that's shared with brothers and sisters. But from here on out, we won't see that. But instead, we'll hear Jesus 13 more times for the end of, until the end of Matthew refer to God as my father. So I want to reflect upon that, on the weight of a father. I want, I want to draw attention to some of the things that, that I think are helpful and even some of the things that for many of us I know are hurtful or make it more difficult to relate to God rightly. Because many of you know there's some around you who relate to you poorly and it has less to do with you personally and more to do with something that a father or mother said or did to them years ago. And they wear the weight of those scars. Or, by God's grace for some of us, they wear the weight of those blessings passed on by a father or mother. A father who expected too much or expected too little. A pattern of relating to a father figure that was simply trying to measure up to someone who was never satisfied. And Jesus says, you don't need to impress this father. <laughs> you, don't need, you don't need to impress this father with lots of words or even fancy words. Your father already knows. Right? We're meant to picture like the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, right? As, the, as they're trying to call down fire, they, they start to shout and dance around. And then they begin to even start to cut themselves to try to get their God to begin to bless them and answer their prayer. It's meant to be a stark contrast to what we have here is that quite literally, we don't cut ourselves for the Father to hear us. There was a man named Jesus who was run through the side and took all of the bloodletting for us so that now the Father hears, welcomes, and knows us. And so we get two sides of the Father here that is both near and distant. We begin to meet our true Father in prayer. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8. For all we who are led by the Spirit of God now are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom now we cry, Abba, Father. I love the exclamation marks in there, right? And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, bears witness now with our own spirit that we are children of God. And now, if we're children, then we're heirs. 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Elsewhere, he tells the Galatians something very similar. And because now you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying again, exclamation marks and all, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if then a son, then an heir through God. Do you hear this language of what now Christ has purchased for us? We come to the Father as children. And that's important for us because for many of you, when I say the word father, when you think about father, so many things that are unhelpful come to mind. So many things. When I say father, you just think of the one who left. When I say father, you think of the one who abused. When I say father, you think of someone that you never heard enough affirmation from. You were just never good enough. And so we have to confess, we have to admit that on their best day, a father, an earthly father or mother, is an analogy. It's a a small, imperfect picture, right? A, A picture that we see through glass very dimly, as Paul would say. A picture of a father who is perfect. And I get to tell you the good news, that your earthly father or your earthly mother doesn't speak for the heavenly father. They can try, and on their best day, they sometimes are analogous to that. But thank God, we have a Father that we can address who is eager to receive us because He already knows. And even for you, maybe the most powerful thing is that you begin to experience healing because you see that God, as a good Father, doesn't relate to us the way that our broken parents did. We also have to address some problems that come with most of modern parenting. I'm going to step on really thin ice here. There is an idolatry of parenting. Uh, it's awful, right? And, and it's, it, it has, it, think of it as like we get joy and satisfaction and meaning in, in how we parent, right? And so if you want to fight about public school or private school or homeschool, it usually has to do with are you better as a human because you are a better parent, right? It's, it, there's a whole lot of layers to it. So all I know is I'm going to trudge right into it and ask for a lot of grace. This is a mess, okay? But here's the best way I know to say it to parents, right? There's a way to parent that has more to do with you than it does the child, right? There's a way to interact with a, with a child in, in a way that, like, is about them and about their growth and about their well-being, And then there's a way to react to a child's behavior or words that has nothing to do with them and only to do with us, right? I I experienced this as uh, kind of in the dawn of what I would call the, like the modern, you know, youth sports industrial complex, a multi-billion dollar industry. I mean, hey, it's a real thing, man. If you want to, there you go. And there's a, there's a way, in my own experience, I would say there's a way that you would hear people relating even to children in sports that was like, I want you to be better, I'm proud of you, good try, way to go, way to hustle. And then there's this other way of relating that's basically saying, you're a bad reflection on me. I look bad because of what you're doing. And ultimately, that sees, that sees things quite opposite to how the Father sees us. And so helicopter parenting this is kind of this euphemism for caring more about the love we get from a child than the love we give. 
It's kind of like, don't make your child cry. Don't make your child unhappy because you love them too much. And so notice, that doesn't rightly reflect the heart of the Father who disciplines. So I'll start there. The heart of the Father is, we'll see uh, in reverse order here, kind of a discipline, uh, an inheritance, and identity. And the discipline, think of it this way, parents are disciplining. Fathers are disciplining their children all the time, nonstop. Even if a father or mother chooses not to interact or in this, like, like whatever you want, whatever makes you happy, whatever to keep you entertained, whatever to keep you from, from freaking out, right? Even that is a form of discipline. Theologically, I would encourage you, like, that's a form of disciplining a child to believe that there is no God who is wrathful and holy and expects perfection. But even more superficially, you're, you're teaching them, hey, you're the center of the universe. Good luck to all the relationships you have in the future, right? I can't wait till you try to convince your future spouse that you, you, why aren't you, I'm the center of the universe. Why don't you, right? Like, so you're disciplining your children. We together are disciplining children, even if you're not a parent. Paul tells us we, in many ways, serve as spiritual parents for people we don't even realize in the church. And, and so like, you, you will be disciplining. It's just a matter of what will you be, where will you be leading this child? What will you be teaching children to value? The second thing, I think we find, as we reflect on this, the heart of the Father is the inheritance. Now, that's hard to talk about because when we talk about inheritance, we usually just picture some like somebody who's going to inherit a trust fund that's being managed well for them, right? Someone's going to get a lot of money or property. But, but you have to kind of go back to, to the way that along with fatherhood here, you would, you would have an inheritance that would include a livelihood, right? A way of living, you would inherit a business or property, a farm, right? For some of you, that, that, you know what that's like. But, but think of it this way. That that's also what makes it so amazing and startling a few chapters ago when Jesus came up to Peter, James, and John, right? And then when he, when he calls the sons of, Debedee, sons of Zebedee to follow him, what does it say that they did? They dropped their nets. They left their father. They left their inheritance, their way of making it in the world, they turned from. And then lastly, I think the Father we find here gives us a sense of identity, a sense of being. Now, this one you might not like. This is fairly countercultural, but I would just emphasize this for the parents in the room and for those of us who want to be spiritual parents. Like, You can't overstate the importance of a father or a mother here. You just can't. Right? There's like it's one thing if you're wounded by your brother, right? It's one thing if you're wounded or betrayed by your friend. It is a whole other thing entirely if you are hurt or wounded by a parent. You carry those scars so, in, in different ways. And here's the thing. Most of us are walking around in denial, of, like, right, in denial about that. And, and all, all your friends who love you, and hopefully in a gracious community, want you to kind of like, hey, Hey, you've noticed you're always trying to measure up. Hey, you're always trying to impress. Hey, have you, you're, you seem to always be angry or dissatisfied. With, right? And, and, and simply to say, like, man, those are the wounds of a father or mother that didn't rightly reflect God as father. They cut deep. You can remove a lot of things in a person's life, but when you remove a strong and stable parent figure, many of you know this. It just causes pain. 
And so we get identity. We have a sense of being that we get from father, that we get from a mother. Again, remember, I, I don't, I don't want to say that a mother can't do this, right? But I want to take Jesus seriously that he's, he's asking something of a father figure that applies at least in some specific senses to men. But obviously, especially if you're a single mom, you're doing both jobs, right? You can see the overlap. And so Jesus is saying, when you come to God and you begin to realize that he freely gives you approval, identity, status, I heard what he, do you hear what he said, told the Galatians? An inheritance? We're going we're gonna to share Jesus' inheritance? I mean, <laughs> and then not only that, but discipline? That is that he's going to make us look more and more like him and his family, right? Then prayer is transformed. And we realize we're coming to a God who receives us, accepts us, and on the basis of Jesus, commends us and hears us and knows the things we long for even before we ask. Secondly, I think what we see here is in prayer, we encounter the transcendence of God. So he says, our Father, but then he says, in heaven. Now you hear this phrase again, over and over and over again. But there's this powerful, mysterious image at work, isn't there? That God is both near as a Father who loves and cares for us, and yet transcendent, creator, majestic, right? Holding all things together in all of the universe or multiverse, however you want to think of it, right? This is what God is doing. And so I would commend this to you. This, this is something profound. Most of, most of our pursuits in the world are, are simply a pursuit to experience the transcendent. Right? Most of you, like, you're chasing dating relationships because it makes you feel alive. Right? You heard those phrases? Right? It makes you, it makes you feel, like, powerful. It makes you feel in some transcendent way, like you're experiencing something supernatural, right? That's why people run to alcohol or to drugs, right? The, I love the, the pagans in the, in the ancient world uh, worshipped a, a god called Bacchus, who was the, the, god of, the god of inebriation, because they believed to experience like the influence of some sort of substance was, it was transcendent. It was like, holy smokes, I'm in another world, right? And so most of the pursuit that people have is, is just to experience something transcendent. They're just trying to get a glimpse of something so glorious and so beautiful that it blows their mind. And Jesus says, you have been freely offered that. And the most transcendent being, the creator and sustainer of the universe, you can run to like a child jump in his lap and ask him for anything. And so for many of you, this might be a helpful corrective, right? If, if you're in the room and you just love the thought of how, like, you know, maybe you have a t-shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy, right? And I would say, sure, he is that. Uh, but he also represents the Father who has created and sustains the universe, who rules in righteousness and will judge with wrath, with his perfect judgment. Like, don't miss the great mystery. The great mystery that you get to call God Father is, is great and, and majestic because he also created all things. 
But maybe for some of you, that, you get more excited, like, oh, yes, tell me more about the God of wrath and justice and righteousness, right? Right, tell me more. And, and here's what I would say, like, you just need to read the Gospel of John and just memorize the verses where, where John says he would recline on Jesus' bosom. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I wish there was a better word to translate that. I'm like, John, couldn't you have thought? But, but do, you see, do you see where this confronts me? I don't like the thought of a dude sitting or leaning and reclining on another dude's bosom. It makes, I'm going to try not to say it again. But it, be invited with me. What a rebuke. What a rebuke that the God of the universe that holds all things cares about you and me, would draw near to us. When his friend Lazarus dies, he weeps. Just weeps. Not because he isn't going to raise him. He absolutely is. And he weeps with him anyway. Notice we see the God who is near as Father is also far and amazing and majestic because he's a Father who is over heaven. Next thing we encounter, glory and prayer. Look at that next phrase. It says, hallowed be your name. It's a tricky word. We don't use this very often. That word hallow means to sanctify or to make holy, to set apart as sacred. Right? And, and that just isn't something we do a lot of. Right? We're, we're, we're modern, post-enlightened Westerners. Right? We don't, there are no sacred things. Right? That we don't, that's not how we, there's, there's a perfectly scientific explanation for that thing. Um, that may be true, uh, and maybe if that's what you believe, I dare you to go play wiffle ball at one of our city's wonderful cemeteries this afternoon. I dare you. Well, we're, we don't hallow things. Oh, yeah, go ahead, try. Have a birthday party, and then just go do it at a cemetery. Just see what happens. I say that because that's probably the closest thing that we have to hallowed ground, right? As if to say, like, there's something special here. There's something going on here. We can't quite put it into words, other than to say it is sacred or holy. That is that it is separate, it is distinct. It, it, it is not the same as these other things. Therefore, it is holy, it is set apart. And even if you're in this room and, and that seems far-fetched, again, look at some of the things that we hallow and hold as sacred. Now, I, I draw attention to this because this word hallow has with it this, this meaning of that there's praise, there's adoration, there's, there's something about the, the way we glorify God and we say his name is special, his name is set apart, he is different. And that's really something when you think about it, right? The name of God, especially when you think of it as a father, every single one of you was given a name. Every single one of you. And just because of our culture, every single one of you carries the name of your father. And if you're like, well, I didn't. I took my mother's name. Well, fine. You're named after your mother's father, right? Like, we all carry that. It's just a kind of a cultural norm. We carry that with us. But every single one of you was named. Now, maybe in some time down the road, you changed your name. You gave yourself a name, but it probably wasn't your original one. Notice what we see here about what is set apart from the name of God. Do you know the one person who no one gets to name? Who when Moses asked God, hey, when I go to tell these people to set these people free, who will I say, right? 
who am I going to tell them sent me? And as if he's just say, like, no one gets to say that. I am what I am. You don't get to name me. My name's not like your name. I name others, right? And so the first story in Genesis is God invites the, the first couple into the work of cultivating. And what is, what's the way that they serve and love? They name, right? Even the, even the first interaction between a man and a woman, what does the man do? Names. It sings her a sonnet, gives her a, a song name, right? But he says here, to rightly interact with the Father is to know that no one names him. This is pretty important for us. I think there's two things we learn from it. One is that God desires and in his work gives us a new identity and a new name, like a good father would do, in a way that only a father can do. Right? Until you're, until you're a grandson, and then you can name the patriarch or the matriarch Baba or Philip, you know, something, whatever, whatever you can think of. But think of it this way. It's like, there's no one who can name this father, and he gives us a name. And here's what this means for us. I think, uh, as you hear the, the language of the New Testament describe our relationship to Satan and the enemy, and the way that Jesus often rebukes and even refers to some of these people as the spawn of or the offspring or right, the, the descendants of Satan. This is powerful. God in Christ names us. And that means that one of the places that the enemy does the most powerful work is I would tell you right now, Satan wants to name you. Like Satan doesn't want to tempt you and bother you. Satan wants to adopt you. Satan wants you to take on his name and to hallow God's name and to realize that he is the unnamed one who ultimately names us and calls us into being and calls us into existence. As we begin to see that, it frees us from the temptations that I believe the enemy gives. Some of you are walking around with the weight of a title someone threw on you, and you know what I'm talking about. That thing someone called you. That even, if you, even as you hear, it just makes you cringe. But notice here what, where he says, there's a father who's transcendent and near, and his name is special. He is unnamed, and when he names, he names in a way that is unlike any other. And some of the most powerful stories in the Bible include that, right? Abram, an old, impotent, lifeless, good-as-dead old man, right? And what does he call him? I'm going to call you Father. What? Simon, you coward, you arrogant, insecure, right? You, you, you just, you, you loud, obnoxious person who will betray. You know what I'm going to call you? The rock. Do you get it? When you hallow the name of God, it, it changes the way you experience who he is and how he sees us even. The second thing I think we learn from this is what you hallow what you set apart as holy changes everything. Now notice, just practically speaking, in order here, the petitions that come in verse 11 come after what is hallowed. Because after all, if you don't hallow God's name, if God and who he is and how he relates to us in Christ isn't special, then everything you'll pray for at the end will be poison. It will be awful. 
And that's why it precedes it. Because if, if you don't hallow and, and glorify the right things, the, the things that, in this sense, disseminate from God, then, then your daily bread will be a daily poison. Your forgiveness will be cheap. And even then, what you will feel delivered from, what you see as truly evil, will be crafted by what you hallow. And so, in prayer, we get a a view not only of God's transcendence, but we encounter glory. God, there's none like you. Here's my challenge for you this week. Commit time to pray in which you ask for nothing. Make it a discipline in your prayer just to simply say how good God is. In your heart, in your own, in your own mind, to set him aside as the unnamed one. Right? Even though that's a, God, I don't even know what to call you. I just have to add more words, right? And you're going to find yourself sounding like a pagan. Don't worry. He'll hear it. Not because of the words, but because you're, you're trying to encounter him. You're trying to meet him on the basis of who he has shown himself to be. Otherwise, what you'll do is you'll try to name God. And you'll craft for yourself a God who likes all the stuff that you like who votes for all the things you vote for, hates all the things you hate, and what you'll be end with, what you'll be left with is an idol, a graven image, an image crafted like your own likeness, rather than a God who is transcendent and yet near as Father. In prayer, we also encounter our true king and our true destiny. Look at the petition that comes next. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So now, now that you see God as Father, now that you realize He's not like anyone else, He's the unnamed one, He's the one that is, now we begin to ask the right things of Him. God, I want your reign, I want your sovereignty. I want you who are hallowed and holy, you who are sacred, you who are timeless. You who are unfathomable, I want you, I want you to have reign over all these things because I know that what you want is better than what I want. I want you and your will to be done because I know that what you desire and your plan is better than mine. I think we see a few things here that I want to just point out. One is mission. Notice this is a powerful prayer. We are praying that the glory of God's name would be known and experienced around the world. We are praying that justice and mercy and kindness and redemption and reconciliation would be experienced around the world. We're saying, God, all that stuff that exists in your presence, all the pleasures at your right hand, all the mercy, all the justice, all the redemption, bring it here. Bring, that, bring some more of that kingdom Reign over my life. Reign over all these places that seem godless and broken. And then we're praying for his will. That his desire for his kingdom and his plan would come about. This means that as Christians, we value obedience. Right? Not so that we will gain God's favor, but because we have been granted his favor. We don't obey him like a slave master. We obey him like a father who asks things like, Come sit with me, right? Come sit on my lap. Come eat with me. And then to begin to pray this way is to ask God that he would bring 
people into his kingdom, into his will. So beware of the attempt to minimize the meaning and effect of obedience because God's will changes our will. And in so praying, like in praying this way, we encounter our true king and our true destiny. Now, I just gave you a list of things we encounter in Jesus. I said that you're in prayer, but I want you to realize that ultimately this prayer is something that only Jesus can answer. And as Jesus prays for us, we receive. I said to you, in prayer, we get all these things. But notice, in Jesus, we get all these things. We meet our true Father. We find out what He's like. He loves us and draws us to Himself. He pursues us to the utmost. He's truly transcendent. It's beyond anything we can explain. He's truly glorious, truly beautiful. There is no one who has walked the earth that commands this kind of attention and reflection. He's a true king. And he's our perfect destiny. His will for us, his plan for us, for you and for me to be in the long list of the all things he is making new. Think of it this way. That's God wants more for you than you will ever want for yourself. Remember that question I asked, what's the biggest thing I've ever asked for? Later in Ephesians, we find out that there's a glory on the way that is beyond what we could ask or imagine. And God is a good father. That means for us that what he allows is in mysterious ways better than what we would allow. Now, I don't know how to work some of these mysteries out. I wrestle with them and I will until Jesus comes back and makes them all new. But when I realize that God is a father, that what he means for you and for me is always good, then even the more difficult things, the awful things, I can celebrate as temporary. It frees me from being anxious or cold and babbling, as we saw as an example. And it frees us from being self-righteous, trying to somehow impress God and others. So notice the starting point of hypocritical prayer me. And what's the starting point of this transcendent prayer? The Father. And in it, we realize, I mean, just the list of things we're asking for here is a picture of the gospel. This prayer, it can only be prayed by those who have heard him and changed by the gospel. That the worst people get the best stuff. What an amazing grace that we could ask and I love the imperative language in verse 10. Almost like demand. God, you better bring your kingdom. And God's like, okay. Just think of that. To, to approach the throne that way with such boldness because it's so gracious. That's not how the world works. <laughs> and the good news is this kingdom, and we see even this prayer, it's not from this world. So let me wrap up with two analogies. One, as we conclude thinking about longing for God's kingdom and his will on earth, in our lives presently, as it is in eternity, I'll give you two examples. One is what it means to, like we saw before, to stop commodifying people. Because after all, if you don't hallow the name of God, then what you ask for will ultimately be you seeing God as an object, a tool that you get to move around like you want to get whatever you desire. But when you hallow God's name, you begin to realize what they want is good. 
Now, I'll just give you an example. This is what love looks like. This is a mentor of mine reminded me of this. Like, this is what love really looks like. I'll coach some of you who are, who are married or desiring to be married on this one. You can learn from my foolishness. Uh, if, if your significant other uh, spouse asks you, like, uh, hey, you know, why do you love me? There are two ways to go on this one. One, if you're an immature, foolish person who needs a lot of grace, you'll just start listing the benefits of that person, right? Well, you're just, you're lovely, you're beautiful, you're smart, you're a good wife, you're a good mom, you're, right? You'll just list those things, right? Or maybe, maybe even do worse, you'll make a, what we describe like as a, a comparative compliment, which is even worse, right? Like you're just the most beautiful person in the room, but, which is saying that's, I love you until the next most beautiful person comes in the room, right? That's one way to answer uh, we described this, uh, some of you heard me talk about this, and we were going through the book of Thessalonians, what it means to really love and exalt God is like, we tend to say love when what we really mean is I just like its benefits. I was, the analogy I use is like, I love cows, right? I love cows so much that I'm okay with what's known as animal husbandry, uh, and them being packed into trucks and freezing weather and, and feedlots where they're fattened up, and then where they're shot in the back of the head, chopped up in pieces, served medium rare on a plate in front of me. That's how much I love cows. And so what am, I, what am I saying in that? I, I don't really care about them or their well-being. I just love their benefit. And most people, when they say they love a person, are really communicating the same thing. But here's a second way. Someone asks you what it means to love them. You can just say, I just love you for who you are. I just love you for who you are. I just love everything that you are to me. Not for the benefits that I get, but just for how glorious and wonderful you are. You could take me all the way out of the equation and you still would be lovely without me. And notice, that's the kind of prayer that happens. And when you love someone for who they are, you start putting yourself in their shoes and you start wanting what they want. <laughs> That'll mess you up, right? I love this until it changes you, right? I mean... Just go back to the analogy. What if, like, what if I love the cow enough to ask the cow what they want, right? Absurd. Why would you do that? But when you begin to love someone, you actually start to want what they want. Here's a second analogy we see. It's right out of the Old Testament. There's a story of a son who always had a chip on his shoulder, who always wanted the blessing from his father. We, we know him as Jacob. And he has this life marked by scheming. That's even what his name means. By, by always trying to catch up. The first story told about him is that like he, he came out of his mother's womb with his twin brother latched onto his heel. And he, and he always was trying to swindle and fight until the 32nd chapter, something amazing happens. He's scared for, this is all going to come back to him. His brother's about to like exact vengeance upon him. And then in the middle of the night, he wrestles with a figure. Some mysterious story here, I commend it to you. That, and he finds out, in the middle of it, he realizes he's actually wrestling with God. God actually came in the flesh to wrestle with him. And they wrestled all night long until finally it was as if like this figure just touched him on the hip and paralyzed his hip. It says, it says literally, it took it out of socket. 
And Jacob began to realize he was wrestling with this God, but this God could have destroyed him at any given moment. He began to realize that this God was just playing with him. And then something in him changes. His hip is out of socket, and he says, please, bless me. And this figure represents God, God in the flesh there, says, what's your name? He says, Jacob. And he says, you know what? From now on, you'll be known as Israel because you fought with God and prevailed. Now you'll say, well, you can't fight with God and prevail. Well, the good news you see is in the next verse. He says that, it says that Israel named that place and he named that place that a place where he fought with God and yet was delivered. I want you to see the power of the Lord's prayer to, to want what God wants, to wrestle with him and realize that the best part of the Lord's prayer is that we get him. What a beautiful picture of Jacob paralyzed at the hip and yet saying, I don't care what you do to me. I, I want you. I'm not going to let go of you. And it transformed the rest of his story. And he's able to say, Okay, God, I want you. I want your kingdom. I want your will. All the way up to the picture of Jacob and Israel fulfilled, we find at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus in a garden, knowing what faced him. And you know what he prays? When he sees the transcendent work of God to redeem a sinful people, he prays the Lord's Prayer. Every one of the four Gospels records this to some extent. Jesus goes on a little further in the garden, and it says he fell on his face and he prayed. When you, when you fall on your face and pray, you find out what you're really hallow. And he says, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Cup being an image of judgment and suffering. But he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Friend, in Jesus, we, we meet the true Father, the transcendent and the glorious one. We meet our true King, and we even find our perfect destiny because at the moment where Jesus could have taken everything for himself, he poured himself out. And he shows us that the power of this prayer is not in the blessing that comes from it, but the fount of every blessing that we actually get the Father, that when we begin to pray this way, we experience God himself such that even the things that he wants become the things that we want. Friend, we can pray this Lord's Prayer even in private because Jesus did. And when Jesus had the opportunity to turn on you and me, he said, Father, not my will, but yours. Let's pray and thank God for that. Jesus, thank you for how glorious you are. Thank you for how majestic you are. Thank you for how good you are to me and good you are to us. Thank you for uh, how gracious you are that in the moment of suffering, you, instead of seeking your own pleasure and your own comfort, decided to give that up for us. God, we thank you for this prayer, but not just because it helps us to see you rightly and I hope gives comfort and instruction to us today, but this prayer begins to show us what 
it's like to know you. Thank you that at the moment where we needed you most, you prayed the most perfectly on our behalf. We thank you for showing us the Father. We thank you for showing us beauty and majesty and transcendence. We thank you that when we look at you, we see glory. We thank you that in you, we, we see what your will is like and what your kingdom is like. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.